0: Welcome to the Botztieber Austrian-American Podcast, produced by the Botztieber Institute for Austrian-American Studies. We feature interviews with experts examining the historic relationship between the United States and Austria.
1: My name is Jonathan Singerton, and I'm your host for today. 3.7 million migrants crossed the Atlantic from Austria-Hungary between 1880 and 1914, in the first decades of the 20th century, Austro-Hungarian migrants were the largest immigration group in the United States. Many of them came to stay, finding hard but good jobs and often romance, but 40% were return migrants, preferring to work seasonally and go back to their homeland. Today's podcast is the first of three podcasts dedicated to exploring the history of the mass migration from Austria-Hungary to the United States. Joining me on this theme are three historians who co-authored a landmark new book on this migration entitled, From a Multi-Ethnic Empire to a Nation of Nations, Austro-Hungarian Migrants in the US, 1870-1940. Dr. Vladimir Fischer-Nittmeier is today's guest. As a research associate at the Institute of Modern and Contemporary Historical Research, the Austrian Academy of Sciences in Vienna, he has worked on and led numerous research projects, ranging from mobilization of national sentiments in the 19th century, to transnational identities in cities, from early modern social linguistics to the representation of elites in Southeast Europe. He obtained his PhD in history from the University of Vienna. He currently works on the digital edition of the Minutes of the Council of Ministers of the Austro-Hungarian Monarchy.
2: My background is in uh, uh, the history of uh, Austria-Hungary uh, and Southeastern Europe. Um, I'm a trained Slavist as well. Um, uh, but now I, I, I've, I work completely as a Habsburg, Central European historian.
1: Mm -hmm. And how did you come to find this topic or to work with Anna Maria and James on this
2: topic? Oh yeah, I've known Anna Maria for quite some time and at one point she invited me to uh, to this project uh, because of my expertise in South Slavic languages. Uh, The plan was to have um, a case study on one of the... uh, Populations who came from Austria Hungary to the United States uh, who did not speak German. So I did the uh, the South Slavic part as as we called it or as it has been called. So you were the
1: most important team player in some ways.
2: No, well, we, all, we were all important. Uh, Jim Jim was uh, uh, there for the Hungarians uh, as, as well, and uh, so we had at least three languages or four if you come as you know. Uh, in four foreign languages because I also um, tackled the Slovenian uh, sources. Mm-hmm. So it was Serbo-Croatian and Slovenian.
1: What um, was the most um, surprising
2: or interesting part of your research? Well, uh, the most interesting findings uh, for me was uh, the uh, stark difference between uh, the time before and after World War I. For the migrants from Austria-Hungary to the United States, um, because it was a real watershed for these for these migrants, their uh, their life changed completely. Um, mostly because uh, it was it became much much more difficult uh, to go to the United States, and this had many many consequences for them. And
1: when I spoke to James, he mentioned that the First World War was also the the natural endpoint for your book that it was a real break and a cut-off yeah. point for, for migrants. Would you agree about that?
2: Uh, well, it was not the cutoff point for the book, because the book goes uh, um, until the 1940s. But it, was, uh, it is kind of a hinge, or the, the central, in, in, in the chronology, it is the, the central turning point. Um, because uh, everything changed for the migrants, their, their access to, uh, to get to the United States, and their involvement um, uh, as um, as migrants in uh, in U.S. society completely changed because they came under scrutiny uh, by the uh, U.S. authorities because uh, austro Hungarians were of course citizens of an enemy state, and um, they had to um, to respond to these challenges, which was difficult for most of them. And of course, after World War One, um, when the, when it was uh, harder to come to the United States and also harder to go back to Europe or because uh, the situation in Europe was so uh, So dire so so difficult for them. They would not they would not uh, return to the uh, to to Europe uh, as many had planned They were now in the United States and had to face a completely new uh, situation where they were um, Challenged by uh, being US citizens and this, this this had not been the plan for them it? The plan had rather been to be uh, temporary migrants, um, probably to return to Europe. and Now they were, they they had to become Americans somehow. This changed uh, many. This, this posed many political uh, and economic and other social uh, questions to them, of course.
1: Could you talk about how you decided where to start the book and why 1870 in that area, that time was a very important um, time?
2: Well, about the starting point, I cannot say much. I think it is. Uh, yeah, this is a question for Anna Marie. I think <laughs> this has um, uh, more or less to do with the with the uh, uh, with the rise um, of this so-called um, uh, second wave m- migration uh, from Europe to the United States, which we uh, chose to call a second cohort migrants um, because the term is more correct, and wave is somehow a, a loaded term. Um, so, basically, in the 1870s, um, a, a different kind of migration to the United States set in. Uh, these were mainly caused by the cheaper transportation means now, uh, steamships, uh, transatlantic steamships, migrants could come to the United States relatively cheaply, and um, this meant this, that uh, a new migration model was possible for them. They could. Uh, they could make a migration strategy or plan like we go to the United States for some months or some years earn money there and go back to Europe um, and and fulfill some or um, in order to uh, um, what can I say Uh, in order to um, complete some projects that they they wanted to complete with the money they, they had earned in, in the United States like pay back uh, uh, debts or uh, build a house or uh, uh, start a family or whatever.
1: Great, thank you. The book is based on a lot of different methodologies correct? Yeah. And did you find there were um, some difficulties in pulling all of these methodologies together mm. or did you find that it provided you with more opportunities how did you come to grips with the methodology aspect of this
2: well I, I um, about methodology I came up um, I came up with a with a pun so to say or <laughs> a joke uh, so what we did is not, uh, it's not rocket science but it is like rocket science because if you to launch a rocket you have to uh, have uh, several um, disciplines working together, mathematics, physics, astronomy, uh, engineering, what 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 have you. And it's important that people work across these disciplinary boundaries. Um, So this is what we did. We uh, did not care so so much about uh, traditional disciplinary boundaries. And instead wanted to make uh, research that works uh, by uh, using methodology from quantitative uh, sociology uh, and and then uh, quantitative uh, historiography and discourse analysis and classical historiographical uh, methodology which is the uh, so-called historical critical method from um, uh, the early 19th century and how it developed in of course for the for the historical uh, discipline. Did you have any
1: eureka moments with this? We thought, ah, this is working, or this is odd, or this is giving us something great. here.
2: Yeah, there was one moment when we when we knew that uh, the, uh, the the methodological crossover did work or does work, and this was when Anne Marie um, uh, presented me with uh, her findings on the development of the migrant marriage market, as, uh, uh, as it is called, um, by several authors and, uh, and my own findings from migrant newspapers and at that point we, we, we knew that this is going to work because uh, the, uh, my findings from the migrant newspapers, Croatian, Slovenian and Serbian newspapers in the United States, tied together really neatly with uh, what what Anne-Marie, uh, had found out about the, the migrant marriage market in the United States which was, of course, uh, again, um, uh, tied to the, uh, uh, the, the, um, the watershed of World War I, uh, because uh, the um, migration or immigration opportunities uh, were uh, decreasing after World War I because of several quota laws. Also, the marriage market uh, had closed. So we called that the closure of the migrant marriage market for the Austro-Hungarian migrant in the United States. And I could, I could uh, um, see in my newspapers, and, uh, in these uh, migrant newspapers in the United States, so called foreign language newspapers, that um, some years after uh, the closure of the marriage market, that is in around 1918, the migrant uh, newspapers started uh, discussing topics which they hadn't tackled before World War I. Before World War I, this was a, a strictly male world. You could see advertisements for male clothes and uh, only few for, for female clothes, for example, and uh, uh, topics of, um, uh, to do with family, gender, uh, marriage and so, and so forth were not really discussed before World War I. And afterward it was, it was a, a hot topic, so sort to of say, in these, in these newspapers. And you could see um, in the following years that uh, the migrant um, newspaper editors and, and journalists started to, um, to develop um, a way of keeping up their ethnic groups which they wanted to, um, to manage by uh, saying, well, let's not marry out, let's marry our people and this, this has uh, become a, a, a really important topic in these, in these new newspapers and this is one of the major uh, eureka uh, moments, uh, so to say, for, for our research when we knew this, it was a good idea to, to combine the methodologies.
1: Great, good to hear. I wanted to ask you a very broad question then. How important do you think Austrian-Hungarian immigration to the U.S. is in, in a historical perspective?
2: Well, uh, the, uh, I think the importance of Austrian-Hungarian migration to the United States is uh, greater than you would assume. Of course, it's it's important for the for the self-sending countries. Um, but as Anne-Marie's uh, numbers show, uh, the uh, Austro-Hungarians were the largest uh, immigrant group um, in the early 19th century. 28 uh, percent. This was more than uh, Russians and Italians, uh, who were number two and three uh, in this in this ranking, so to say. So um, it is clear by these by this um, quantitative historical research that uh, by numbers only. Austro-Hungarian migration to the United States was really big. And if you, again, combine methodologies, you can also see that in, in American or U.S. discourses, um, these migrants have left their, their traces. Um, at that time, uh, Austrian migrants were well, in begriff. As it were, uh, p- people knew who they were, or people <laughs> thought strange. they knew who they were. They knew that they were there and there were many prejudices against uh, Austrians or Hungarians. Many uh, derisive uh, names were applied to them, including Bohunks and uh, Hunkies and, uh, and so forth. Um, so they were in a really important presence in the United States, which you can, however, only see if you look at them as Austro-Hungarians. If you look at them uh, as has been mostly been done uh, by 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 research in the in the last decades, I would say, as uh, Croats and Hungarians and Germans or German-speaking Austrians, and uh, Czechs, Slovaks, uh, Slovenians, Serbs, uh, and so forth, Jews. You don't. You neither. You can neither see the the sheer numbers of this migration, and you can also not see the importance in, in discourse. Because then you would always say, well. This, is, this was the way the Hungarians were treated by the, in, 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 the, in, in the U.S. public, for, for example, on the Croatians, uh, while, um, while there, was, there was a whole discourse on Austrians as a whole group in the United States at that time. And this was pretty uh, important for, for American discourse as well, in many respects.
1: Brilliant, thank you. You um, mentioned before we started
2: about beer and how beer was
1: important. Can you say a few words yeah, about that?
2: Well, this is <laughs> I think this, is, this would have been Jim's special topic. Uh, the uh, Austrian-Hungarian migrants were involved, of course, in, in, in brewing and, and uh, selling and, and buying liquor and consuming liquor so, to a great deal. You can see that um, from uh, uh, companies which were founded by Austrians and, and Hungarians. Uh, citizens uh, in in the united states bohemian beers uh, famous of course Um, you can also see uh, in the in the advertisements you find in the in the migrant newspapers in foreign language newspapers that the um, alcohol trade was an important uh, important business uh, for for the migrants uh, migrant entrepreneurs Um, and it was also of course uh, important uh, consumer behavior you had, um, and uh, it was also uh, um, a subject of nostalgia, especially after World War I, um, when the advertisement and consumption of uh, domestic alcohol, as they called it, alcohol from, for example, Slivovitz from then Yugoslavia to the United States was, was a very uh, important uh, part of a kind of a new nostalgia industry that developed for the migrants. A taste of home. Exactly. That's <laughs> that's exactly. I think one of the, uh, the 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 titles of one ad. Yeah.
1: Great. Great. Uh, a penultimate question. Um, how did you find working with Anna Maria and James? What were the opportunities? What were the challenges? Mm-hmm.
2: I think uh, working together as a team um, and writing one monography together as three researchers was an, a new experience, an, a very important one, and I, I think it was really great. I can only recommend that to other researchers. Um, this is uh, a way to uh, bring to fruit uh, several different methodologies, uh, much more than you would have in, a, in an edited volume. It forces you to uh, to listen to the to the other researchers to work, to really work together, and I think, of course, um, yeah, you can you can uh, feel when you read the book uh, that there are three different voices, or you could say three different accents. You can see you, see, you can hear the accents when you read it, um, but I think this is uh, this is okay because. Uh, especially because uh, this book is also about uh, cultural difference and uh, um, crossing crossing boundaries. And this was our way to do that.
1: Very nice. Um, my final question is, what was your most enjoyable moment during writing this book or doing the research for this book? What did you enjoy the most?
2: There were many enjoyable moments <laughs> because uh, being in the United States at that, at that time was very nice. But uh, as... As far as research is concerned, I would say uh, um, working with uh, U.S. archives, uh, this was a real joy for me I, I must, and, and with libraries uh, because um, coming from a Central European background, of course, you are used, as a historian, you are used to archives that, are, that have been destroyed, that have been burnt down. Um, archives where large uh, amounts of, of documents have been destroyed uh, during dictatorships, in our case the, the fascist, uh, two fascist dictatorships in Austria. So usually you would have a whole period, especially in the time we were uh, working on, uh, with many ruptures and, and problems with the, with the sources uh, due to that, due to the political changes and, 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 and so forth. And in the United States, of course, you also have ruptures, but not that that violent and, and, and sweeping uh, as you have, have in, in uh, as you can see in, in Austrian uh, and other, other Central European archives. And being able to 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 use such a broad area of, of documents, uh, which are which are just there, <laughs> it's available, uh, is of course a great joy for a historian. And also the American system of uh, 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 archiving was very very uh, convincing and convenient for me I must say How long did you spend may I ask in the US? Yeah, half a year so I, I arrived in, uh, in Minneapolis in, in, in January in 2010 uh, in winter and left there in, in summer So You, got, so I, uh, yeah. you warmed up <laughs> Great um,
1: Finally uh, are there any other thoughts or points you'd like to mm-hmm. make? Any yeah. fun moments? or?
2: No, well, I mean, th- I think there are some, some points to the book which are really important to me and, and were important to us uh, as a team. Um, I think the book is not only intended to be uh, a, a case study on Austro-Hungarian migrants Including a case study on uh, so-called South Slav migrants. It is also um, kind of a demonstration what what you can do with uh, with methodology as a historian. And um, one important point was, of course, to to really uh, combine methodologies, to bridge, to to, to cross the uh, um, the divide between. Uh, quantitative and so-called qualitative methodologies. This is really, this was really important to us and this is one of the, I think, most important achievements of the book uh, besides the uh, the um, uh, the work on, on Austrian-American migrants, of course, is to, to be able to show that it is really possible to bring quantitative and qualitative methodology together and to, to, uh, to bring them to bear. Um, the other point that is really important to me is um, to to speak to be uh, to try to be able to speak about cultural difference and and social difference in terms that are uh, non-essentialist which means um, if you for example if you are studying uh, phenomena like I do uh, people from present-day Serbia Croatia Slovenia back then Austria and Hungary, or uh, cis and Hungary, is always difficult to say, well, the Croats did that, the Serbs did that, the Slovenes did that, they wanted this or that or or that, because um, you cannot really, you you cannot say from a standpoint today, this person was a Croat, because you don't know what the person uh, actually identified as. And this is why we uh, uh, try to uh, apply a very careful terminology. For example, we avoided the term identity altogether, or we tried to avoid the term identity altogether, and instead to speak about uh, identification to see it as a process, and and also to uh, concentrate on the on the parts of identification which are really uh, provable, scientifically provable, and often tangible. So we. we Instead of saying, well, there was this ethnic idea or that ethnic idea, we said, okay, let's look at the hard facts, um, the infrastructure of uh, ethnic identification, for example, the fraternal homes where people could, could gather, uh, the newspapers, the, the presses where they, where they produced uh, their, their uh, public culture, and, of course, the, um, the money they needed in order to maintain this kind of identification. So this is a, a point which is very important to me, and uh, I think we did a pretty good job to, <laughs> to, to, to say the things we wanted to say there.
1: Thank you so much for being here. And Thank you for
2: having me. The
0: Botztieber Austrian-American Podcast is produced by the Botsteeper Institute for Austrian-American Studies, which seeks to promote an understanding of the historic relationship between the United States and Austria, including the Habsburg Empire. To learn more about our grants, publications, events, and other programming, visit botsteeperbias.org or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. Welcome to the Badstieber Austrian-American Podcast, produced by the Badstieber Institute for Austrian-American Studies. We feature interviews with experts examining the historic relationship between the United States and Austria.
1: 3.7 million migrants crossed the Atlantic from Austria-Hungary between 1880 and 1914. In the first decades of the 20th century, Austro-Hungarian migrants were the largest immigration group in the United States. Many of them came to stay, finding hard but good jobs, and often romance. But 40% were return migrants, preferring to re- work seasonally and go back to their homeland. Today's podcast is the second of three podcasts dedicated to exploring the history of the mass migration from Austria-Hungary to the United States. Joining me on this theme are three historians who co-authored a landmark new book on this migration entitled From a Multi-Ethnic Empire to a Nation of Nations, Austro-Hungarian Migrants in the US, to If you missed the first instalment with Dr. Vladimir Fischer-Nippmeyer, then be sure to check it out on the Pochettiber website. Professor James Oberle is our guest today. Professor Oberle is a Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. In addition to co-authoring from a multi-ethnic empire to a nation of nations, Professor Oberle published an article in the first volume of the Pochettiber Institute's Journal of Austrian-American History, entitled, Love at First Sight and an Arrangement for Life, Investigating and Interpreting a 1910 Hungarian Migrant Marriage. Today he joins us to talk about his role within the book project, his broader findings and highlights from working with two other historians on a single volume. Before we begin, I should point out that unlike the millions of Austro-Hungarian migrants, I was not able to travel to America, and so Professor Oberly kindly agreed to be our gas fire Skype. You might find the audio different to other podcasts available through the Bodleian Institute as a result. Thanks for being here today James Oberly. Um, if you could please, can you talk about yourself uh, and your research?
3: Good morning Jonathan, so my name is James Oberly, and I'm a professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire and I've, I've done my academic training in the United States Went to Columbia University is for undergraduate work and the University of Rochester for graduate work. And my specialties include um, American economic history and American Indian history.
1: So, how did you uh, find yourself studying Austrian Hungarian immigration to the United States?
3: Well, um, I have a family background. My family came from the dual monarchy some generations ago to the United States. They were emigrants from Hungary and immigrants to the United States. So that's an interest. And um, I study the Hungarian language and read it pretty well, speak it with a, an American accent. And um, I'm interested in the topic broadly. So um, that's how I got interested.
1: Do you have any family memories of Austria-Hungary from your, from your grandparents?
3: No, I never heard the language growing up. I'm a couple of generations removed, and um, that's part of the story—the immigrant story of close connections to the homeland, and then um, connections fraying and eventually disappearing altogether. And um, in my case, also, there's no family left. They were all murdered in mm-hmm. the Second yes. World War. So,
1: okay, I'm um, sorry to hear about that. Um, could you? Please tell us a a brief overview of your book, what you set out to do, and what uh, the ultimate message is of your book.
3: Well, um, uh, the three of us got together, and uh, first is that um, we're impressed by the um, size of the um, migration coming from Austria-Hungary. It came in two streams. Um, the first was mainly, um, an agricultural, of uh, agricultural workers coming to the United States, um, settling in agriculture as well, particularly from the, um, uh, Bohemia in the monarchy and, uh, people came after the American Civil War, some before the American Civil War, but especially after, and, um, many took up residency in the United States in the Middle West, became highly successful farmers and stayed. That was their intention all along. Then a larger uh, wave um, began really after 1890 or so from other parts of the monarchy, as well as Bohemia, but other parts as well. This is largely a proletarian wave of rural workers coming to the United States, um, working in American industry. They dug coal, they made steel. They slaughtered um, animals, whatever American dirty jobs were needed to do. Um, You could find migrants from the dual monarchy. And um, we don't know that they all wanted to stay. In fact, we think it was pretty common that um, these migrants came, worked for a couple of years, three years, five years, whatever, saved money, sent it back, and then returned. So a different migration stream. So we're interested in those two stories of those who came intending to stay and those who came intending to work and return home. That um, second group we regard as quite um, modern, modern in the 21st century. Um, This is much of the story of world migration the last um, century or so. And we see these migrants from um, Austria-Hungary as uh, forerunners. This is um, the way migration commonly works today. Go to a country that um, pays better money, work hard, save, send it back, support families at home, and eventually return home. So that's one theme, is the two migration streams. A second theme is people who are used to dealing with many different types of people. In the American context, we call this diversity, and um, it comes with conflict and friction, sometimes cooperation. We're interested in the migrants from Austria-Hungary because they came from a multi-ethnic empire, um, multilingual, multi-confessional. They were used to dealing with different types of people, came to the United States, which um, prided itself on being a nation of nations, but yet here struggled to make other Americans understand who they were from, that Austria-Hungary, to Americans was just Austria or possibly Hungary, but um, little understanding of the multi-ethnic character of the monarchy. And um, that's an interesting story also, trying to understand oneself in the United States and make uh, Americans understand who you are. Um, Let me give you one example, Jonathan. Um, uh, In the American press, People who came from what well, today would be Slovenia and spoke Slovene, or sometimes from Croatia and spoke Croat, Americans tended to they not, didn't understand their language and thought, "Oh, this language of Austrian is strange to the ear," and um, that's how many Americans regarded them. They were, if they were from the Austrian half of the monarchy, they spoke Austrian, and for people who were proud of their background. Um, This was a struggle to be understood and um, eventually to become the hybrid Americans, Slovene Americans, Croat Americans, uh, whatever, um, was part of their um, becoming Americans.
1: If I could ask you, this fragmentation of Austrian-Hungarian immigrants um, to the United States, do you think that's part of the reason why the identity of this immigration is is lost, why it's in some sense a forgotten immigration.
3: Well, um, yes, there's politics uh, at work as well. The United States had um, diplomatic relations with Austria-Hungary from probably the time of Joseph II, uh, or at least soon thereafter. And um, the United States was sensitive to the wishes of the monarchy as far as... um, the monarchy considered its subjects over here. So, for example, um, Austria-Hungary wanted to convince American officials that there were just the two halves of the monarchy, the Austrian crown lands and um, the Kingdom of Hungary. So, for example, in the 1910 census, um, the United States census taker said, if you were born in the monarchy, you're either an Austrian or a Hungarian and many people protested that who were migrants. So people from Bohemia, people from um, Galicia, um, people from the Bukovina, um, people from Croatia and elsewhere, and they wanted to be understood that they weren't Austrians or just Hungarians. So that's an interesting example of American officialdom taking its cues about how to regard a people from officials of the dual monarchy who said they're either Austrians or they're Hungarians. So the theme of citizenship is an interesting one. People came over at a time of largely open borders. This was a time of pretty much free immigration. But the United States asked few questions. I think one question was, are you an anarchist? And if you answered no, you were in. So it was easy immigration here, and there was no particular um, pressure and often no great incentive for a migrant, say, in 1900 to become a U.S. citizen. And for a long time, many did not and just worked as um, migrants here, citizens of the dual monarchy, and probably with the intention of going back. And so the United States wanted to know how to classify them. They're either Austrians or Hungarians. And yet people who came here said, we're more than that. That's not how we see ourselves. We see ourselves as Slovenes or as um, Poles or as Ruthenians, uh, Ukrainians.
1: So on that note, do you see um, the American perspective on this immigration as a useful way to understand Habsburg history? Or is it more telling us about the American side of the story?
3: I don't think it's too helpful at all. I think the Americans were um, often just baffled um, by this. And um, yes, in trying to think, Jonathan, during the First World War, you know, the United States tried to mediate it several times between the Entente and the Central Powers. And going into even into 1917, had a peace plan, a peace without victory plan. And when the United States broke diplomatic relations with Germany in February 1917, it deliberately did not do so with Austria Hungary, did not go to war with the dual monarchy until late in 1917, hoping to pry them away. So the United States certainly was aware of the importance of Austria Hungary. This was a an empire of 50 plus million people, a significant military and naval power in the Mediterranean and the United States certainly took that into account. But as far as the people from here, um, no. So to to further answer your question, the United States um, did not regard Austrian-Hungarian migrants here as enemy aliens. There was no vast detention of them. There was no taking of their property nothing like that. And those who wanted to volunteer to serve in the American Army could, but they weren't drafted, unlike people who were U.S. citizens. So there were many um, of these questions to sort out. One thing we did find, our research, Vladimir, um, particularly, and and, uh, Marie and I as well, is the pressure these migrants were under once the war began in 1917, and especially after Austria-Hungary came in, for migrants to declare themselves four square behind the American side. And um, the way to do that uh, typically was to, with money was to invest in what the Americans called liberty bonds. And like all the warring parties on the entente and the central powers, um, national governments raise money through popular loans, war bonds, um, liberty loans, what have you, I think Germany went through eight or nine of these, Austria, Hungary went through um, half a dozen. Some were in Vienna, the major money was raised there, but Hungary as well. Before the United States got into the war, the Austria and Hungary tried to raise money from their people in the United States. It was difficult to do that, difficult to send money um, uh, during, during the British blockade. Not much was raised, but then after the United States got in, there was intense pressure on Austrian-Hungarian migrants to show their loyalty to the American cause with their wallets by putting up money to buy American liberty bonds. And Vladimir, in particular, has found stories of uh, migrants from the South, South Slav migrants from Slovenia, Croatia, some Serbs, in effect, being terrorized, either buy a liberty bond here or get tarred and feathered or something like that. And so it was an anxious time for people who weren't citizens living in the United States, um, anxious about what was happening to their families back home. Postal communications were cut in 1918. Um, Telegraph communications were cut after the United States went to war with Austria-Hungary. It was impossible to send money, no news from home, war going on over the territories, um, a very difficult time to be a migrant. And we see World War I is, is quite significant then in, in breaking some of those ties to um, Austria-Hungary. And then after the war with the successor states, um, the people um, making a decision here, should we go back, do we want to go back to a war, countries that have been hurt by war, or is our future here in the Americas? And That's what most decided. So here we are, Jonathan, on the centennial of the um, First World War coming up on the centennial of the end October 1918, such a tumultuous time as one power after another in the central powers asked for an armistice. And then it was the middle of October 1918, wasn't it, Jonathan, when Austria-Hungary broke up when the emperor said, we'll be a federation of autonomous peoples. And by that time, it wasn't enough. One after another, there were national committees who proclaimed their independence, recognized by the Entente. And it was a new world born 100 years ago. And probably nobody followed this more closely than migrants from Bohemia, Moravia, from Slovakia, from the many parts of the monarchy, followed it very closely.
1: Thank you. Um, really fascinating. I have, so in my mind, then 1918 is a natural end point for your book, but I would like to ask what is the natural beginning for your book in the sense? Where did you, how did you all decide where to begin this story? Was there, was there an actual, um, starting point that was clear from the research you did?
3: Well, our book is uses many different methods. We use qualitative methods. We use quantitative methods. And in that sense, it's probably the quantitative methods that directed us. If you look at um, a history written by a Hungarian, they will say, well, the Americans were served by Hungarian officers in the American Revolution, and they helped um, with discipline or whatever, or the Austrians could say the same. But there weren't that many people here from monarchy in 1776 or even in the next war against Great Britain in the war of 1812. So we were directed by the numbers and that first wave of rural immigrants leaving Bohemia, leaving Moravia, um, seeking farmland in the American Midwest. That really begins in earnest um, after the American civil war. And so we, we began our book in 1870 and, um, We used the US census quite a bit. We used the censuses from Austria, Hungary quite a bit. It helped us, Jonathan, that the census takers in Austria and in Hungary and the United States all did a decennial census in the US cases on the um, even decade years, 1870, 1880, so forth. Same for Austria. The Hungarian censuses were. Um, 1869, 1880, and so forth. So it was possible to work with census material from both sides of the Atlantic. And this was a a topic of great interest to um, census takers in the dual monarchy. Who was leaving? Where were they going to? Who was coming back? Um, In many ways, we found much more valuable material in the um, censuses in Austria and Hungary than the American one.
1: What was the most surprising find for you during this research?
3: let's see. The most surprising finding for me, um, I suppose, back to a topic we covered, it's um, the pressure of the First World War um, forcing people to decide who are they, where is their future, what is their identity. And I think so many um, single men or men whose families accompany them or men who married here because it was largely a a male migration up till 1910 or so, trying to decide where their future was. And I I thought I was impressed by how many intended to return and then how the First World War broke that and made people into Hungarian-Americans or Slovene-Americans or Croat-Americans, that their future was here. But they kept that identity and became, became the part of the nation of nations. The intersection, Jonathan, um, you ask what's the most surprising um, uh, finding, and I suppose it would be the intersection of big history, the history of the struggle of the empires of Europe and uh, the world war, the first world conflagration, with the um, granular detail of individual lives of uh, making decisions, where is my future? Do I want to go home to a completely different place, or is my future here? And big history and micro-history.
1: My final question to you is, what were the challenges or the opportunities you found by writing this with two other historians?
3: I sought opportunities to work with two brilliant colleagues. and uh, to understand um, their perspectives and to work together as a team to share drafts um, help each other with writing and questioning Um, this is unusual jonathan for because it is typical that in least american uh, writing of history american historiography you have a pattern of the lone scholar working in a study early in the morning late at night and um putting his or her work out for consideration. In the sciences, other social sciences, it's more common for scholars to work in teams. So it was a delight to work with two, as I say, brilliant um, scholars and to share ideas and question one another. Um, I highly recommend that to other historians. Find partners, do collaborative work, um, try it. I'd like to thank the Botsteeper Foundation for supporting this work. Um, It was a wonderful experience, and I hope people benefit from our book.
1: Thank you so much, James.
3: Goodbye.
0: The Botsteeper Austrian American Podcast is produced by the Botsteeper Institute for Austrian-American Studies, which seeks to promote an understanding of the historic relationship between the United States and Austria, including the Habsburg Empire. To learn more about our grants, publications, events, and other programming, visit Botsteeperbias.org or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. Welcome to the Botsteber Austrian-American Podcast, produced by the Botztieber Institute for Austrian-American Studies. We feature interviews with experts examining the historic relationship between the United States and Austria.
1: My name is Jonathan Singerton, and I'm your host for today. 3.7 million migrants crossed the Atlantic from Austria-Hungary between 1880 and 1914, In the first decades of the 20th century, Austro-Hungarian migrants were the largest immigration group in the United States. Many of them came to stay, finding hard but good jobs and often romance. But 40% were return migrants, preferring to work seasonally and go back to their homeland. Today's podcast is the last of three podcasts dedicated to exploring the history of the mass migration from austria hungary to the United States. Joining me on this theme are three historians who co-authored a landmark new book on this migration entitled from a multi ethnic empire to a nation of nations, Austro Hungarian migrants in the US, 1870 to 1940. If you missed the previous installments with Dr. Vladimir Fischer Nibmeyer and Professor James Oberle, then be sure to check them out at the BoxDebo website. Professor Annemarie Steidel is an associate professor at the Institute for Economic and Social History at the University of Vienna. Her research interests are focused on the history of mobility and migration in the tw- 19th and 20th centuries. And in addition to co-authoring from a multi-ethnic empire to a nation of nations, she has also co-edited several volumes on the history of European and transatlantic labour migration. Today, Professor Steidl joins us to talk about her research for the book and the experience of writing as part of a team. Could you tell us, please, the uh, key facts about your book?
4: So what, what, what we were really interested in in the research that we did on these migrants coming from Austria-Hungary to the U.S., was how they adapted into a U.S. society, which was a very multi-plural society of lots and lots of migrants. So it's, but um, especially at the beginning of the 20th century, people coming from Austria-Hungary were um, a big part of uh, new arrivals. Um, and the other thing is that they themselves were uh, a multi-ethnic community coming from uh, different parts of the monarchy speaking various languages uh, following different denominations religions so it's not just coming from a dominant catholic country but there was a lot of jews among them but there was also uh, greek orthodox uh Ukrainian Orthodox, uh, there were Protestants among them. Uh, So um, what we were interested in is how these people adapted into uh, this new uh, environment. uh, And we were looking at at this by analyzing different factors. uh, um, So we we looked at how these people, where they settled, uh, which job they were looking for, then uh, um, I did an analysis about their marriage patterns, so um, whom they choose as partner with, because this is a, a very important part of your life, right? You're gonna end up with somebody, and um, so uh, you have to choose carefully. Uh, and, and, and the last part that we looked at very, is about uh, the, the public discourses. Now how these, these people were, had their own, discourse, but also how these interlinked with broader U.S. American discourses at that time.
1: Great, thank you. Um, what was the most enjoyable aspect of this research for you?
4: There are two things that were most enjoyable. First of all, um, we did that research in the U.S. and this was a, a time um, for us um, yeah, to have a very, very fruitful and very Hospita- hospitality? hospital hospital yeah. hospital hospital uh, hospital environment no? um, at the uh, uh, UMN the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis now we had we had I even mean, there was uh, first of all the the immigration history research center which has tons of material concerning these people about their associations letters uh, newspapers journals there's really uh, lots and lots of material and and they uh, opened all of this very friendly and were were extremely helpful to us and and second there was the um, Minnesota Population Center they were extremely supportive and we had uh, offices there we could use all their equipment Uh, we had Perth computer and um, we were all more or less in the same building except that Jim Overly and I, we were sitting in the basement and uh, Vladimir was uh, sitting at the IHSC, um on, on top. So um, he had the better view <laughs> than we had, but we were looking at computers most of the time anyhow. Um, and this, um, so so this was a very important part that made it really enjoyable working on that project. And the other thing was uh, doing um, that study um, together and not doing it on our own. So, Um, how the way we were organized was really perfect so we had meetings once a week where we uh, talked about our new findings and how we're gonna um, structure all that things how we're gonna structure the book that was um that was not always enjoyable Uh, this was also hard work um but um having such um a good environment and having um, a good research group makes it such an analysis can be it's it's simply better to do it this way no?
1: How did the three of you come to work together? Was it you that started this book or Jim or Vladimir?
4: It it was me who started the book. It was me who started the book uh, together with uh, Gary Cohn. So Gary Cohn um, and I, I mean, it was mostly Gary who came up uh, that he wanted to do some sort of a research project and then there was also, and I have to say, um, we are very thankful to um, the Podstiba Foundation because they financed the whole thing and they were very generous when it comes to finance uh, our research. Um, and so Gary had the idea, why don't we apply for a project and there is this fantastic material and it's all in our house, no? it's all in in Minneapolis uh, at the university anyhow now with these two institutions having lots and lots of material uh, why don't we do something together and there was also then uh Donna gabacha involved who was um the head of the uh, immigration history research center at that time so we had a meeting with Donna gabacha talking about that and she was very supportive because uh, she really liked the idea but, um, having these number crunches down there in the basement no? and uh, working with their uh, narrative material um, on, on on the top floor of the building no? is um, an interesting way because they usually don't collaborate that much. No? Uh, so this was uh, Gary and me and uh, in the end also Donna who was involved in it. And then we were looking for people who might be interested in the topic and who want to join us. And uh, it was me who more or less recruited Vladimir and uh, convinced him to spend half a year in the US with me. And um, it was Gary who um, talked to Jim Overley uh, if he's interested, because Jim has this, um, yeah, uh, um, I think it's, it's his father's side who is uh, originally from the Hungarian monarchy and so he was, Highly interested in that part of the project, and this was more or less also his his specialty uh, in the whole uh, project that uh, he did. Uh, he worked on the Hungarians. So.
1: Just a quick question on that: Did you have any, you know, personal reason to do this kind of research, Austrian-American relations, or was it out of your your previous research that this? Book it was came?
4: more or less out of my previous research. It has nothing to. I mean. Um, It goes a long way back that I did my habilitation, which is still not published, but I'm working on it, so I'm working on the next book. Uh, But uh, uh, for that, I I did uh, an analysis of Ship Passenger Manifest for Austria-Hungary, and um, um, I was working on more or less the Austrian side of it, Uh, of this U.S. migration. And then... um, Gary and I together, and mostly Gary came up with that idea doing something about the American side. What's happening after these people have already moved and they settled down in the US, what happened to these people then? So how long, for example, one of the questions: how long could they maintain their ethnic belongings? And how long did it take for them to be part of a broader US American society? Mm
1: Great. Did you, you said earlier that um, there were some challenges about structuring such a broad topic. How did you approach that? What were your initial thoughts about how to write such a book and how to write on such a topic? It was,
4: first of all, a, um, a question of um, combining different methods. No? Um, so this is also to do with the different materials we were working at. So... Um, One of the things that we talked about a lot was how to combine quantitative and qualitative approaches to such a topic. When we're working on, for example, I did a lot of work on the U.S.-American census from the 1850s to the 1930s about um, these marriage patterns. And on the same time, Vladimir was working on newspapers and journals uh, about the same, uh, which were published at the same period and he were looking at when was um, a topic like marriage first addressed in these uh, journals uh, for example in the newspapers of the migrant communities so all these migrant communities had their own newspapers there were tons of newspapers in the. US at that time about ethnic communities and um, about and, and, and it's important to look at at them uh, when. Um, a topic really gets interested. Now, when when does it appear the, the first time? And, and for a long time, um, most of these uh, journals were written for men, and most of these journals talked about job situations. they talked about uh, or newspapers. They talked about the news which were coming from Europe. They talked about news uh, which were coming from uh, the U.S. But um, at a certain point, they started to to talk also about weddings, for example. No? So uh, you could really see uh, by the topic, following the topics of these newspapers, that um, uh, they had women's pages at one point. So they talked about these more topics that were interested by women at that time. They talked about family. They talked about children. They talked about the marriage of the Vanderbilts and, and things like that. Uh, um, about, yeah, marrying, uh, I think it was one of the Vanderbilt daughters who married a Hungarian count. Uh, so there was a lot of these uh, uh, rich American girls who married uh, European n- royalties, nobility, no? Who didn't have any money left, no? <laughs> and and people were interested in that, no? and 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 you could see that the more people, the more marriage was um, was an important factor for these people. The more they also talked about it in in the newspapers, no? and and for a long time, at least for the first and the second generation, uh, they really were looking for marriage partners from the same community, no? and. Um, Especially the First World War was a, a big um, change for these people, now uh, because after I mean with uh, nineteen seventeen people had to have a passport to come to the US. No? There was a lot of new regulations, and then there was this uh, um, in the nineteen twenties. There was the so-called quota laws, first one and then the second one. So it means that um, millions um, or thousands of people who had the intention about going to the uh, u.s couldn't do it anymore because they didn't get a visa so uh for for the community who was already there in the u.s it was more and more important how to keep up their community when there is no new people coming so um marrying within the uh community uh, got more and more important but on the other hand there were less and less unmarried people. So single people coming from Europe and uh, uh, looking for a marriage partner. So uh, this got an important topic for them. And so we have one, uh, on the one hand, you can see that by numbers, looking at the numbers, and uh, looking at the population centers. And on the other hand, you can follow the same uh, topic uh, in in the discourse of the people by, by looking at the newspaper, what they are talking about.
1: On that note, with your work on the, the, the marriages and so on, um, were there any surprises you had or any particular stories you thought were really intriguing? Any people, any characters that really came out of the data for you?
4: We had one story, but we ended up not having her in the book. <laughs> but um, uh, the story about that, I mean it's it's actually a couple now, and, and the story about the couple, but it's, uh I think yeah yeah it's the story in the Potsdam journal so it's published now as a as a separate article in in Potsdam journal uh and it, it's the story um who was in the New York Times in in 1908 I think about a young girl called Piroshka from Hungary who um were on the Exes Carpathia yeah, going to New York and um, her fiancé, Andrew, uh, was a Colorado miner who was a migrant himself from Hungary before that, but um, yeah, and they met in, in Ellis Island. And this was a story that was um, published in the New York Times and uh, the story was called "Hasten to Marry His Mother's Joyce because uh, it was actually Andrew Malas' mother who uh, started the whole thing with this marriage. No? But then uh, Jim over—it was this was mostly Jim's doing. So Jim was following that story, and he really found the couple, and uh, he went on and on and on with it. So now he already talked on, at least on the phone, with uh, grandchildren of that woman, who was uh, if, she was later on called Pearl and not Pirushka anymore. No?
1: It's fascinating. Um, That's one of the aspects I think is interesting about your book is it's about real people in that sense. Um, And Jim talked to us about how uh, the macro comes down to the the micro, you know, how states, um, laws and these changes, for example, with the first World War, really change and affect the individuals and the families' lives. Was that an important aspect, you think, for your research agenda when you started to think about how these families were and how they are today or the legacies of this migration?
4: No, actually, this was not the uh, beginning of the uh, when the research started. This was something that came out of a lot of discussion. Uh, as I told you before, we had these weekly meetings, and I never did um, this. So I'm more the macro person. I never did uh, really micro history or going to the micro analysis or looking at individual families or even people. But it was Jim who brought it in, uh, more or less. It was his doing, and I think. Um, it's making the book more approachable now. We also have uh, another story of uh, Joseph and Barbara Kaplan. So they were actually migrants coming from um, Moravia, and they already left in 1856. So, uh, early migrants going to the US, not going to the US via Canada at that time. So they, they actually did, they, they got married and in the same year, They went to the U.S. via, I don't know, the Canadian board, but uh, they came in via the Great Lakes, um, and then they uh, settled in Overtona in Minnesota. And after they had 10 kids, Barbara died as often, so it was too much for her. But what that guy did is, after uh, being a widow for one year, he decided he has to uh, have a new wife, especially since he had 10 kids at home. He needed somebody to take care of the household and take care of the kids. Uh, but instead of um, staying in the US and finding a new wife, he went back to his home village. Mm-hmm. After being for yeah, nearly 15 or even longer, 15 years in the US, he made his way back, um, found a young girl, married her in his home village, and this very same year went back to Ovatona. They and again had 12 children. So all in all, he had twenty-two offsprings, <laughs> <It's crazy. laughs> which is a, which is a crazy story for that time. But um, the 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 thing about, uh, the idea why we integrated that story into our book is 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 that, that that habit of having to have a wife from the same community and it's not even the same community it's even the same village, no? mm. um, which was important for these people even when having 10 children at home, uh, uh, some of them must have been really, really small. Uh, He left them for uh, months to do that. Um, And that was a story that fascinated us. And uh, I found it um, in St. Paul, in the uh, uh, Minnesota Historical Society. They they have an archive there. And uh, uh, there you can find such fascinating stories that, it's not that all of these migrants did the same, no, but it's just showing you this is one of the possibilities people had at that time. No?
1: And it's part of a very rich tapestry of um, migrant stories. I think they're also in the book, so it's, it's fascinating to know. This this uh, migration was rather large, but um, Vladimir has told us it was you know, the largest ethnic migration to the US. Um, in what way do you think that... Um, That forgotten migration, if we can call it that, is um, remembered today or has an impact today?
4: I would not call it a forgotten migration because uh, there is, at least in some, um, I mean there's not Austria-Hungary anymore, but in some of the following states there is a lot of um, remembrance about that migration, so... Uh, it's not that in Poland they don't remember how many people went overseas. No? We also have regions in, in Austria where this is still um, part of the um, um, collaborative memory of the people now, like like in Burgenland. In, in Burgenland in the, the whole emigration uh, is highly remembered, but this has also to do that the Burgenlanders didn't stop going overseas with the First World War. No? They, they, um, the did um, uh, that pattern went on after the war and even after the Second World War, so that in, in, the, in there were still people going overseas in the nineteen fifties. No? So this is one of the reasons why it, it, it's remembered there. So it's not an overall forgotten story. No? The other thing is that if you look, for example, in Vorarlberg, which is uh, a tiny region, nearly as tiny as Burland in, in Austria now, uh, bordering to to Switzerland. Uh, um, there you have um, a long, long tradition of migrating. Uh, so people were already going to uh, Alsac in France, as far as as far as Paris, as masons and stone workers in the 17th, 18th century, and these were among the first ones who went overseas via French harbors, Cherbourg, mainly. And there you have also um, um, a tradition of remembering that stories. And uh, for example, if you go to the um, museum of the province of Vorarlberg, uh, they always have, it's part of their exhibitions, uh, to remember that migration story of that region. It's just that Austria itself doesn't have a long tradition because um, th- yeah, it's these small provinces, Burgenland and Vorarlberg, but there is not much about that topic in Upper and Lower Austria, okay. for example. But we do have in the in, in, in the in the in the in the the successor states of the Habsburg monarchy, there there is uh, a legacy going on of that migration.
1: My final point to you then is this: what what would the, say. Um, enjoyable aspects of working with two other people in this sense uh, can you I know you talked about this earlier in those two, but could you tell us again what you felt the, the challenges were or the opportunities
4: there were a lot of challenges <laughs> because uh, we approached that topic from very different angles now first of all there was uh, Vladimir who um, is a real qualitative person so he, he had no clue what we number crunchers are doing now. But he got more and more fascinated in it. And I got more and more, I mean, I am got more and more fascinated by um, uh, his work uh, uh, um, approaching it, the, the narrative material, like newspapers and ads and all these sorts of things, letters that we, he looked at um, and doing a discourse analysis. This was uh, a very important part of the project Uh, But it was a challenge uh, at the beginning to understand each other because, um, yeah, uh, we are doing different things and uh, the same was with with Jim who had a um, a more micro approach following uh, individual people, following families, which uh, was new to me because I I mean there there are so many different methods out there for doing historical analysis uh, and uh, I think a characteristic of a good historical analysis is to mix these uh, different methodical approaches, Uh, uh, but usually this is hard when you are just on your own, because you cannot be an expert in various methods, Uh, this is simply too much for one person. So this is one of the things that I really enjoyed about working there, that I got not just a glimpse into other methods, um, I more or less get an... an, we had to, uh, uh, to a certain except we had to understand each other when talking to each other no? and for that you have to have some at least some basic knowledge of what these people are doing no? uh, when they um, yeah um, analyze the, the population centers of the US no? and, and you have to you have to be able to read those tables no? and on the other hand I had to understand what Vladimir is doing with analyzing his newspapers and um, uh, in that way uh, I think we also learned a lot from each other. But it was not always easy now.
1: Well, on that note, can I just ask you, would you continue to do collaborative history writing?
4: Yeah. We are are just working on a new, uh, we just submitted a new proposal for, not the US, but uh, for doing a study on (laughs) Trieste.
1: Perfect. We look forward to to that. Um, Finally, is there before we finish? Is there anything you want to add, or you haven't said, or anything at all? You
4: no, I, more or less. Uh, I want to thank all these people again who helped us to get this book together. So I already uh, um, um, mentioned uh, the the University of of Minnesota in Minneapolis, who so was of great support. But I also have to say that uh, I want to thank the Center Austria in. Uh, New Orleans uh, and Günther uh, Bishop, uh, the head of that center, for publishing that book in his book series. No? That was uh, great of him. I really, yeah. Great. I'm really thankful to him that uh, we could publish it. No?
1: Great. Yeah. Thank you very much.
0: You're welcome. The Botsteber Austrian American Podcast is produced by the Botsteeper Institute for Austrian-American Studies, which seeks to promote an understanding of the historic relationship between the United States and Austria, including the Habsburg Empire. To learn more about our grants, publications, events, and other programming, visit botsteeperbias.org or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube.